Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. With Robo Hair. Sprite Castle. Hello and welcome to Sprite Castle, the show in which we play, discuss, and review Commodore 64 games. My name is Rob Flack O'Hara, and on this episode of Sprite Castle, we will be discussing Little Computer People. This was a request sent in by Dr. Quest. So, Dr. Quest sent a request. I just saw that. Uh, if you have requests for the show, you can always email them to me. The contact information is listed at the end of the show. Do you know what the original working title for Little Computer People was? You will find out the answer to that question later in the episode. Before we get started with this episode's game, let's check the Daily Sun for this week's Paperboy Headlines. I did get some feedback this week, uh, or last week, I should say, from Ferg. You may have heard of Ferg from the 2600 Game by Game podcast, which is a very good podcast. And if you somehow have heard of my show but not his show, you should definitely check his show out. Um, Ferg sent me some feedback uh, in the last episode. I discussed Seamus. And I said that the game was ported to the Commodore 64 by Jack Thornton. But I wasn't able to find anything else that Jack Thornton had done. Well, Ferg uh, sent me a link to uh, a website that actually tracks developers uh, and, and coders and, and people and projects they worked on. Uh, and um, Jack L. Thornton Jr. actually did several ports, uh, which I was not aware of. He ported um, – there are some on here that uh, are either for systems or games I never heard of, but along with Seamus – he did port uh, Attack of the Mutant Camels uh, from the, the Commodore 64. He ported Gremlins to the C64 from the Atari 5200. He also ported Demon Attack to the Commodore 64 from the 2600. Uh, Rescue on Fractalus, which is a uh, popular Lucasfilms game. I'm not sure if that's on the request list or not, but um, he ported that from the Atari 800. And then later he did... Uh, also port Bo Jackson baseball and football to the Game Boy. So, um, yeah, it looks like he, he ported several things, and that's definitely a, a, a valuable skill. You know, back then I'm sure it was a lot more difficult to um, translate the code. I mean, I, you know, maybe not for the systems that shared uh, chip architecture, like multiple systems that were based on the 6502 processor, but, um, you know, going from uh, some of these it seems like like from the 2600 to the uh, Commodore 64, I'm sure that was uh, quite the feat. So anyway, thanks, Ferg, for letting me know about that link and that website. And um, there's a little bit more about Jack Thornton. In news, uh, I don't have too much this week. Uh, I have a few non-Commodore uh, things that I tossed in here. Um, I have added a link on the SpriteCastle.com website to the SpriteCastle spreadsheet this is the spreadsheet that I use to track all the episodes. So if you are familiar with uh, normal spreadsheets, or it, it's a, a Google Docs spreadsheet, but um, if you look down at the bottom, you'll see three links. One is the audio link, and that has a list of all the audio episodes that have been released. And it has a little bit of information like, you know, who the... Uh, uh, company was, the year it was released, uh, who the king of the castle was for that episode, those sorts of things. Uh, the second link has uh, all the YouTube 
episodes that I did. There were 30 episodes, and so you can, uh, if you want to browse through and see what games were released uh, in that iteration, the early iteration of Sprite Castle, you could do that. And there are links uh, on that tab to all the YouTube episodes. And then finally, on the third one, there's a list of all the games that have been requested. So you can flip through there and look for uh, what games people have requested, what games I've added to the list. Um, so I have been plucking games from that list to do in no particular order. Uh, so if you don't see a game on the third tab that you would like to, uh, request, uh, for the show, you can just send me a note and I will add that to the list along with your name. And the link to the spreadsheet again is in the, uh, I think it's the top link on the right hand side of spritecastle.com. So if you want to check that out, that's where you can see that. My buddy Christopher Tupa posted a picture of me as a zombie <laughs> on Facebook, which sounds like a weird news thing to mention, but Christopher Tupa uh, has been a longtime fan and friend. He has been, uh, he does his own podcast. Christopher Tupa has his own podcast. You can find his podcast and his show, his artwork, all the cool things that he does over at C-Tupa, and I will put a, I think it's ctupa.com. I almost said .org. I think it's ctupa.com, but I'll put a link to uh, Christopher's site on uh, our link. His, his podcast is listed on Throwback Network, and uh, uh, I know Christopher has, uh, we've done some different things with him with Throwback Reviews, and uh, just an all-around great guy, uh, and a very, very talented artist. I know he's done some uh, children's illustrated books. He's done all kinds of artwork, just, just a super talented and super nice guy. So anyway, uh, he's doing a 31 days of Halloween and he has, um, done paintings. He did a painting of, uh, uh, Sean from throwback reviews and the average runner podcast. He did one of me. I know he did one of uh, Ferg from the 2600 game by game podcast. I know I saw one of, uh, the Zerbinator. Uh, so Lots of, uh, he's just, like I said, just a super talented guy. So I'll, I'll add that link. And I think he actually sells. Yeah, he does have a, uh, uh, Etsy shop or something. So I may add a link to that because I, I actually bought, uh, a painting from him. Uh, it was a small, like a, almost a thumbnail size thing that he had done of Indiana Jones. And, uh, just, uh, again, I feel like I'm going on and on about the guy, but, uh, just really talented. So I'll put those links in there and, and uh, Christmas is coming up. That's what I bought. The the one that I bought, I bought last year for a Christmas present uh, for my dad. So if you're looking for a, a personalized gift for somebody or um, uh, maybe you just want to splurge and buy something for yourself, then you can go check that out. Uh, let's see what else. We just passed October 21st, 2015. And if you have a Facebook, Twitter, uh, or cable television or any other access to social media or online or newspapers anywhere – you know that that was Back to the Future Day. And so um, I hope you celebrated by playing one of the Back to the Future games on the Commodore 64, Back to the Future 1, 2, and 3. I think one is from Electric Dreams and the other two are from Imageworks. Um, but uh, they are all pretty much universally panned as being terrible games. So <laughs> maybe if you have access to a time-traveling DeLorean, you could go back and not play those games. But uh, uh, I did load a couple of those up just to go back and revisit them. They're uh, so difficult and kind of complicated to play. Uh, they're not for me. So I did not add them to the Sprite Castle list of recommendations. But if you 
we're certainly, I don't know, I think most people are out of it. You know how it is where everybody gets in the mood, uh, you know, Back to the Future. I, my local arcade had a Back to the Future costume party, and everybody's Back to the Future, Back to the Future. You know, you see all these links, and then all of a sudden it goes away. So it's a week later. seems like it's kind of gone away now. But if you haven't quite got it out of your system, you can go back and play some of those Back to the Future games. Uh, I did find a link. Someone sent me a link to this, um, and it is on a website called retrocomputerscene.com forward slash high scores. You can probably just get to it from that main URL, and I will uh, put this link in the show notes. But this is, you know, everybody knows about Twin Galaxies, which is the website that tracks arcade high scores and and records. But um, this is a website that tracks high scores for computer games. And uh, they actually have a separate area just for Commodore 64. Um, so you can go there and, and if there's a game that you've been playing or maybe a game on the show, and maybe I should do that. Maybe starting on the, I think I will, I just decided. Uh, I will start checking that and listing the high score of whatever game. Uh, if it's listed on there, I'll list the high score. Of course, this week's game uh, isn't really a game at all and doesn't have a score. So saved myself a trip. That's what I did today. But anyway, uh, so that, that was kind of a neat thing. I may start checking that. I, When I check those things, especially like uh, arcade stuff when I was uh, co-hosting uh, No Quarter, which, by the way, No Quarter is back. They have a new host, and uh, I should probably put that in the show notes too. Um, but uh, uh, Mike McGinnis has brought the show back once again. And um, always, you know, anytime you got people talking about arcade games, it's not a bad thing, you know? So, um uh, I think they've already put two episodes out. So if uh, if you got that out of your uh, feed aggregator or uh, whatever your your podcatcher of choice is, you might want to make sure that you're uh, no. They they've kept the same feed and the, the same uh, WordPress site, and that's all still set up. So uh, if you haven't changed anything, you should be getting those new episodes. But no quarter is back. But uh, I used to play an arcade game every week, and I would go check on. Uh, Twin Galaxies and compare scores and find out that my scores were not, you know, 10% of the world high score. They were 1% <laughs> or less. Uh, so I may find the same thing on this Commodore 64 uh, high score tracker, but but we'll see. Uh, there was a little bit of news this week about the Commodore 65, the C65. So, of course, we're all C64 people here. We'll let the 128 people listen. Uh, and the Amiga guys can hang around. I know that uh, their 16-bit stuff is a little bit better than uh, than our 8-bit graphics, but uh, they're they're allowed to play. But uh, the C65 was supposed to be the uh, sequel to the C64. It had some uh, increased colors and, and increased memory, and um, I, I believe there were um, some prototypes that had a built-in 3.5-inch disk drive that uh, was front-loading. It wasn't on the side like you see on the Amiga 500 and, and 1200, things like that. Um, but there was a uh, Commodore 65 that sold on eBay this week for about $25,000, which to me is just is absolutely nuts. I mean, kudos to whoever bought that, but that's just crazy. I mean, there can't be software out there. I mean, that's just bragging rights, just saying, hey, I own you know this prototype hardware. and Man, that's a lot of money to be able to say that. I'll just say it right now, and I don't have one. <laughs> and I'll just save myself $25,000. Oh, yeah, I got a stack of them. They're in the closet right over here, C65s. Uh, but anyway, um, based on that, I think there's been a little bit of renewed interest in the Mega 
64. Is it Mega 64 or Mega 65? Um, which is a FPGA version uh, of the Commodore C65. It is still under construction. It's supposed to emulate the Commodore C65. I just don't know how much software is out there, but it is backwards compatible, so you will be able to play Commodore 64 software on it. I think I read that the estimated price on this thing is going to be around $300. I mean, uh, actually, I think what I read was at least $300. So that, uh, you know, it could could go up from there. So I'm kind of watching this thing to see how it develops. I don't think that it's something that personally I would probably buy just because... I don't know. I just have so many other things right now that I haven't, you know, gotten into. I mean, things that I own that I really haven't explored. You know, I, I got this mist and, and I'm behind on them um, checking out, you know, all the different cores for that. I mean, I've played two dozen uh, Amiga games on it, you know, and there, and there's a huge Amiga library. And of course it, it does Atari ST and, and, um, the eight bit Atari stuff, which I haven't even delved into. So I feel like there's a lot of things I've got on my plate to get to before, I can get to uh, the Commodore C65, which as a prototype, again, I don't even know. Uh, I know that uh, demo makers will probably enjoy exploiting some of the uh, uh, advanced you know, memory available and, and advanced colors and things like that. But I, for just a layperson that's, that's not a programmer, I'm not just sure what it offers for me. So I'll be following that, the, uh, that mega process or uh, uh, project, but uh, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know. We'll just see where that goes. Uh, finally, the last thing I had here to mention was uh, my friend Lethargic. Lethargic um, is somewhere between... I don't know how to describe him. He's a genius. He's insane. He You're never really sure if he's really insane or if he's just acting insane. Um, I put him in the same category as uh, Andy Kaufman and those type of comedians where... Uh, you're not, you're never sure if you're in on the joke, perhaps maybe just the performer is the only person, uh, that's, that's completely in on the joke. Uh, but lethargic has started his own podcast. Uh, I've been, I've been begging this guy for years to do a show and, uh, uh, he is a very talented musician. He's a talented writer. Uh, he, he does, uh, he has, uh, the largest movie collection of anybody I've ever met. I mean, he just had, uh, back when he was, uh, when VHS was king, I think he had like five or 6,000 VHS tapes, uh, all categorized in, in this huge library in his house. Um, but, uh, so what Lethargic has come up with is the Lethargic Squeaky Chair Worst Podcast on the Internet Podcast. And I've listened, I believe there are three episodes so far, and I could say, uh, they are terrible. <laughs> I mean, they are terrible podcasts. And what has happened is uh, Lethargic has found a notebook full of uh, song lyrics that he wrote in high school and, and middle school and some of his homework, like uh, stories and things like that, that he found from high school. And he is reading those on the air. So uh, I, the first episode is a little rough. There's a lot of coughing and hacking and burping and belching and, of course, that uh, titular Squeaky chair makes an appearance, but uh, after that, things kind of smooth out. I got to tell you, I've been listening to this show uh, to and from work, and uh, it's just absolutely hilarious. It's been cracking me up. So uh, anyway, I will add a link to that, too. If you want to go hear a brilliantly terrible podcast, that is the Lethargic Squeaky Chair Worst Podcast on the Internet Podcast, which is available on iTunes. 
And that brings us to this episode's King of the Castle. This episode's King of the Castle is Steve Shreba. Now, I told you on the last episode that not only did you have to name the song, but you had to mention the connection between uh, the song and the episode. So uh, there were several of you that guessed the song. The song that was played at the end of the episode was Dueling Banjos. Uh, but only three people were able to make the connection. Uh, and the connection was Dueling Banjos uh, was featured in Deliverance, a movie that starred Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds also starred in a movie called Seamus. So that was the connection. That was a tough one. Uh, the one this week won't be quite that difficult. It, yeah, Actually, I think this week's uh, may have... Even less guesses. I don't know. It's going to take a little bit of work, but somebody will get it. Uh, Steve is now, uh, not only is he the king of the castle, but he has been promoted to king of the castle royalty. This is his third time to win. So we are moving uh, Steve over to Sprite Castle royalty along with Paul Ramos. So Paul and Steve are the first two. To be retired from the Sprite Castle competition, maybe at some point we will open it back up to them, but they are just so much better than the rest of you guys. You guys got to get faster on your uh, itchy trigger fingers. So anyway, congratulations again to Steve. You did a good job, and um, welcome to royalty. If you would like to be the next episode's King in the Castle, all you need to do is correctly identify the secret 8-bit game played during the show's closing credits. The song will not be from the game, but will relate to the episode's theme in some way. Once you've identified the song and can tell me what the song is and how it relates to the episode, you will need to send the song title to me either through Facebook, Twitter, email, or the show's voice mailbox. Whoever's the first person to do that will be the next king of the castle. All those contacts are listed in the show's closing credits. I forgot to mention one thing I want to throw in. I'm going to, I want to click around on my mouse here for a minute. I want you to listen. If you heard nothing, which is what I hope, uh, then that is my brand new clickless mouse. Uh, it's a normal USB PC computer mouse, but it doesn't make any sound. Uh, when you click it, I sold uh, one book last month and I also got three $5 donations. So, uh, between the money for the book and the donations, I put that together and purchased this mouse so I can now use a mouse without making clicking sounds while I'm recording my podcast. So if you send donations in, that's what those type of things go to. They go to things to make the show a little bit better. Uh, if you want to get a list of all the shows that I do, and also the link where you can uh, buy me a virtual beer, which is uh, uh, where the money uh, for this mouse came from, you can go to robohara.com forward slash podcasts to find out all about that. And those are this week's headlines brought to you by my local paper boy who just got knocked off his bike by a tire rolling down the street. I live a life of danger. Now that we've covered this week's news, let's discuss this week's snack. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Talking snack. So, you know, it's little computer people. 
and there's not a lot of food related to this uh, game. The little computer person in the game does eat food, but he also drinks coffee, and he drinks water from the thing, but I, but uh, he's got a little mug, and I believe he drinks coffee. And so uh, I got a Keurig, which I've has gone back and forth. It went to work. It came home. Now it's at work again. And uh, since it's at work, I just bought a regular Plano from Big Lots, like a $10 uh, coffee machine. And so that's what I've been using in the morning to make coffee. Um, I, I, I'm one of those people that I'm not picky about a lot of things. In other words, I'll drink coffee black. I'll drink it with a little cream and sugar or I'll drink it with a lot. Really, I'll drink it however you're having your coffee. So if you and I are ever having coffee and you order it some way, I'll probably just say, make it too. <laughs> it just makes the ordering process easier. Uh, when I go through McDonald's, I get a large coffee with three cream and three Splenda. Uh, but my wife is a five and five, which almost makes it taste like hot chocolate. So I'll get it that way. Um, and sometimes, uh, with my dad, he just drinks it black. So we'll just get black coffee. So it just really doesn't matter to me. Uh, I just like coffee. I just like being stimulated. <laughs> I like being jittery. I like being awake all the time. I like sleeping four hours a night. Such a lovely, uh, sleep schedule I have. But anyway, so I made a big pot of coffee. Last night, I filled up uh, even larger than a normal coffee thing. Like It's almost like a thermos kind of thing and, and brought it upstairs and picked out all my notes for this week's uh, little computer people. And I did put some creamer. My wife loves me so much. She was at Walmart the other day and found creamer that looks like R2-D2. I love Star Wars so much, but uh, they are really going overboard with the, the marketing for this one. We also have some bottled water that has Yoda on it for some reason. But we put some R2-D2 creamer in my coffee and um, a little bit of Splenda, and it was so good. And I <laughs> sat up here last night uh, picking out the notes uh, for this week's show. So not an exciting uh, talking snack. You know what? I, I will. Do I have anything else to say about coffee? I drink Starbucks, but just because they have a drive-thru, uh, people give me a hard time. They're like, why Why would you go to Starbucks when you could just go to 7-Eleven? You know what? If 7-Eleven had a drive-thru for coffee, I'd go there every day. I'd go there for 99-cent coffee. I really am not a coffee snob at all. Uh, but and doesn't it seem lazy that <laughs> coffee's a dollar at 7-Eleven, but I'll pay five just because Starbucks has a uh, drive-thru? So if, if you want a, a business idea, you set up a drive-thru outside of 7-Eleven and just charge me three <laughs> for the coffee, and I'll pay you three, and you make two bucks, and I don't have to get out of my car, uh, and everybody's happy. So if you're looking for a business opportunity, there's one for you. Anyway, speaking of business opportunities, uh, wow, that has nothing. I don't think, uh, speaking of business opportunities, I don't think that the fellow that stars in our next game has a job. <laughs> So if he's looking for one, he can get one at 7-Eleven. Anyway, let's get... Oh, this is going terrible. Let's get to this week's game. This week's game is Little Computer People, which was published for the Commodore 64 in 1985 by Activision. It is a simulation that uses keyboard controls. Uh, Activision was founded in 1979 by four programmers at Atari... They uh, wanted more money and recognition for the games they were creating for the Atari 2600. I assume everybody uh, who plays games knows this story at this point. Uh, David Crane, Alan Miller, Robert Whitehead, and Larry Kaplan 
uh, along with former record industry executive Jim Levy, founded Activision. Uh, they they based the structure of their games on Jim's experience with the record industry. So that's why uh, on the Activision releases, they included the artist and their biography, a little bit of information about them. And uh, what else did I cut and paste from Wikipedia here? This marked <laughs> the start of third-party publishing and development for video game consoles. So up until this time, Atari made all their games for the Atari 2600. Odyssey, Magnavox made all their Odyssey games. So this was the first time that somebody else made games for a video game console, which, of course, now you would say, duh. Uh, but uh, back then, it was pretty revolutionary. Uh, Activision either developed or produced 82 games for the Commodore 64. Lots and lots of classic titles, including Alter Ego, Borrowed Time. Uh, they produced, or, yeah, they didn't develop, but they uh, produced Altered Beast they did Ghostbusters 1 and 2, Hacker 1 and 2, Master of the Lamps, uh, Park Patrol. I think I did Park Patrol as part of the YouTube uh, video series. Uh, Pitfall 1 and 2, River Raid, Space Shuttle, Transformers, Toy Bazaar, which is another one uh, that I did, and Zone Ranger. On episode 4 of the audio version of Sprite Castle, we covered Hero which was another Activision release. Activision was active on the Commodore 64 from 1984 to 1992. Their last two releases were Last Ninja 2, Back with a Vengeance, and Power Drift. So they have a pretty large library. You could do worse than to get a Commodore 64 and only play Activision games. I mean, don't recommend it, but, uh, but you would definitely have some good titles to draw from. Uh, there are three people listed on the credits of this game. The first is Rich Gold. Uh, it says Concept by Rich Gold. I have never heard of Rich Gold before, so I did some digging this week. Rich Gold is a composer, cartoonist, artist, and researcher. He came up with the idea for Little Computer People while he was working in the coin-op division of Sega. Uh, he... I found that at Mattel Toys, he was the manager of the Nintendo Power Glove project, so that's pretty interesting. He worked with Xerox uh, Park. This guy was kind of a renaissance man. In 2003, he released uh, a book called The Plentitude, Creativity, Innovation, and Making Stuff. Uh, subtitle is Simplicity, Design, Technology, Business, Life. And unfortunately, I also found that Rich Gold passed away in his sleep in January of 2003. So that's kind of a bummer. Um, but I will probably, nothing to do with this game, will probably do some offline research and try to find out some more about Rich Gold because it, he appears like he's a pretty interesting guy. The game itself was designed by David Crane of Activision. David Crane designed... Fishing Derby, Laser Blast, Freeway, Pitfall 1 and 2, Ghostbusters, A Boy and His Blob, and of course, Little Computer People. Uh, he programmed on the Atari, Outlaw, Canyon Bomber, Pitfall 1 and 2, Ghostbusters. Uh, so he, he definitely um, was both a designer and a developer. I found this little blurb uh, that David Crane uh, said about uh, Little Computer People, and he says the idea for Little Computer People was bought from a developer outside the company. So I assume that's referring to Rich Gold. He says he was interested in the potential of the product and recommended the purchase. 
The original name was Pet Person, which I did not know, which was based on the name Pet Rock, the craze from the 1960s. The first plan was to design the program as kind of an aquarium with no user input. And then it says he rewrote half the program code and integrated additional interactivity. Um, Now, he talks a little bit about the uniqueness of each disc, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. But each disc had its own unique serial number, and based on that serial number, a unique little computer person was generated. And he mentions here uh, that you got... Uh, different variables here includes uh, the name, the shirt color, the personality characteristics, etc. And these were determined independently from the serial numbers. So not only could you get like a little computer person with the same name, but then also that they would have the same shirt color and that they would have, uh, you know, the same different types of traits would be almost zero. So he says each disc was effectively unique. Uh, and, and, you know, on top of that, there's five different types of little computer people. So uh, it's pretty interesting the way that they did this. The third person involved in the game was Russell Lieblick. Uh, he designed Master of the Lamps and Hacker 2. He was a programmer and engineer for Howard the Duck and Master of the Lamps. Howard the Duck is actually not a bad game. It's People can say what they want about the movie, but uh, I like the game. Uh, and he did tons and tons of music and sound effects for other games. Uh, again, he did the music for Master of the Lamps. He did Task Times and Tone Town, which is a classic game. Uh, Portal, he did the sound effects for The Last Ninja. He did the music for SimCity, which SimCity uh, talks about this game as being an influence. Uh, And he did the uh, theme on the Ghostbusters 2 game. So again, uh, lots of uh, uh, sound. Everybody that was involved in this was uh, very involved in the industry. let's talk about the pop culture context of this. And this game came at a time where more people were being exposed to home computers. Uh, there was a lot of interest in uh, virtual reality and artificial intelligence, things like that. I think there were a lot of people that were beginning to use computers that didn't necessarily understand what was inside them or how they worked. We also had movies like Tron, uh, where you have you know this representation of people that are inside an arcade game being real people, uh, and then we have uh, you know war games where you have Joshua, who's a artificial intelligence uh, you know type character that people are interacting with. Uh, before that, we had Hal from two thousand one. So I think some of those things are the influence behind little computer people. Plus, like David Crane talked about the uh, that whole pet rock. Uh, angle, you know, of having a pet on your computer that you would witness. And of course, that same thing of things being inside doesn't stop there. I was just thinking uh, Wreck-It Ralph is, you know, essentially the same type of thing uh, that goes all the way back to Tron. So that, that's been a popular uh, theme uh, in, uh, in film, you know, ever since we've, we've had video games and computers. There are multiple versions of little computer people. Right off the bat, there are two different versions uh, released for the Commodore 64. Uh, they're different. They have Each one has a different cover. The first one looks like a magazine cover, and it kind of has a large, uh, pixelated, glitchy kind of looking guy. Uh, and, it, and like I said, it looks like a magazine article on the front of the uh, box. The second one 
is a little bit more cartoony. It says little computer people. Uh, and then around the edge, it has uh, drawings, like artistic renditions of uh, uh, the little computer person doing different things. Um, the second release also says house on a disc. Now, this is um, something interesting I ran across. I wasn't really that familiar with this, but I've always known this game as little computer people. But uh, it looks like at some point they changed the branding and started referring to this as, at first, little computer people house on a disc, and then later just simply house on a disc. So that was uh, something I, I really wasn't aware of. So that's two different disc releases for the Commodore 64. On top of that, not only were there disc releases, but there were also, uh, it was also released on cassette. Now, the cassette version was, uh, I would say, inferior to the disc version. There were several options that were left out of the cassette version. Uh, the little computer person didn't communicate with uh, the player, which I think is a, a big part of this. Um, each one, uh, you started a, a new session each time, so it didn't save, you know, just like on the disc where it was every time you went back, you, you had saved, you know, uh, what had happened before. And on the, the cassette version, nothing got saved. Um, and he wasn't able to, like, play card games and things like that. So uh, definitely inferior uh, as far as missing a lot of features. So if you have the ability uh, and you plan on, on trying this game out, i definitely go track down the disc version versus the cassette version. I played the traditional version of Little Computer People this week, the original, the first version that I grew up playing. Uh, you boot up to the menu screen, you come up with a blue spiral notebook, and you'll see a pencil and a pencil eraser and a calculator. Um, the top of the spiral notebook says Little Computer People Research Project, and then you get to enter the name of the researcher, which is your first and last name. You hit enter. Then you're prompted for the date, and that date is month, month, Day, day, year, year. Uh, and then you'll put the time in. Now, note that I said year, year, not year, 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 year. <laughs> uh, it only takes a two-digit year code, which means this game is not Y2K compatible. Uh, so there were a lot of concerns. Uh, I, I don't say a lot of concerns. You could test this pretty easily. But, um, you know, I always wondered what would happen when you got to uh, uh, Y2K and then you went back to play this again. Would it think that you hadn't you know, fed your little computer person for a hundred years, but it really doesn't seem to care, uh, what you put in. In fact, uh, when I played it this week, I just put in 15, like 2015 and the game came up and thought it was 1915 and, uh, didn't really seem to have a problem with it. So not a huge Y2K issue, but uh, just something interesting to point out. It also, uh, mentions your session number. So each time you play the game, it keeps track of how many times you've played it and tells you uh, what session it is. Once you are past that screen, you will get to what we will just call the game screen or the layout. Uh, again, it's not really a game, more of a simulation, uh, but you are looking at a 2D cutaway section of a house, like looking at the side of a dollhouse uh, that a child would have. Uh, the instructions call it a two-and-a-half-story house. Uh, there are two full stories, and then there's an attic uh, that I guess is the, the other half a story. On the ground floor, there's a kitchen, dining room, and living room. 
On the second floor, you have a bedroom, bathroom, and a office. And then up in the attic is the entertainment area where there's also a closet and a game desk and a filing cabinet. And you can see all these things all at the same time. There's no scrolling. This is the only screen uh, of the program. When you fire the game up for the first time, your little computer person will show up. He will walk in through the front door. And this is something that's probably confusing to people if you haven't read the documentation or if you've never played this before. The first time you play the game, there will be about five minutes where the little computer person explores the whole house. And during that time, you can't uh, do anything. You can't type. You can't uh, do any of the commands. So you're just stuck watching this. So I think a lot of people... Um, if you downloaded this and you, you didn't read the instructions or something, a lot of people just assume that it wasn't uh, interactive at all. Now, again, Activision uh, had those serial numbers that came on the disc, and that randomly generated your little computer person. So my little computer person, uh, when I was a kid, was named Ogden, and the version I downloaded this week, the guy's name was Tom. Uh, but you will randomly generate... Uh, a, a character, and that character is saved on the discs, and that will be your little computer person for as long as you own that copy of the game. There are 252 possible names for it to pull from. There are five different characters. Uh, there's a young kid with no hat. There's a young guy with a hat. There's a guy with glasses. There's a middle-aged guy. Uh, oh, the, and he's balding. So there's the balding guy. And then there's the old guy, uh, with a mustache. So you could get any of those five, uh, with the 252 possible names and a random colored shirt. Uh, so, you know, the, the chances of you and your buddy getting, uh, even remotely similar little computer people was, uh, was not very good, you know, so that it kind of added to that thing, uh, that, that this was your own, uh, little computer person. And so, again, this is where the move-in sequence takes place. The little computer person comes in, uh, walks all around the house, checks everything out, and during that time, you can't uh, do anything. Now, once that sequence is over, you can start issuing uh, commands. Now, there are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, uh, 8 different commands that you can issue to your little computer person. Not commands, but things to interact with, and they are done with uh, holding down control and a letter on the keyboard. Control F delivers food to the front door. Control W refills his water tank, and you can uh, watch the water levels go up, and you'll hear a little glub, glub, glub as that happens. Uh, Control A sets off the alarm clock next to his bed. Control D leaves dog food at the front door. Control C uh, sends a phone call. And, uh, if, if, uh, that happens, you'll hear the little computer person talk on the phone and you'll get to hear his little unique, uh, voice language, which was different, uh, on each different computer system, I guess, just because how it randomly generated the uh, sounds for the voice, but it sounds different. I know the Amiga version sounds different than the C64. The Apple one sounds similar, uh, to the Commodore, but, but they're all a little bit different. It's kind of interesting. 
Control P, uh, pets your little computer person, and that happens down in the lounge chair next to where the phone is. So if you hit that, your little computer person will go there, and a little hand will come out on a <laughs> like a little extending bar and pat your guy on the head. Uh, Control R leaves a record for his stereo. He can go play the record. And Control B leaves a book. Uh, so each one of these things does something on the screen. Like, for example, when you leave, uh, you know, when you hit Control D to leave dog food, the doorbell rings and then your little guy will stop what he's doing and go to the front door and, and go pick up the dog food and, and take it to the kitchen, you know, or feed the dog or whatever. So uh, they do do little um, interactive things with each one of these things. Like, uh, you know, when you make the phone ring, he goes there and answers the phone. Um you can also use the keyboard to communicate directly with your little computer person. You can write them notes and ask them, hey, would you please play a record? Would you please, uh, you know, feed the dog? Would you please uh, exercise? You know, all these little different things. Um, but you have to say please. You don't have to, but uh, there's some sort of algorithm that tracks how happy your little computer person is. And if you don't use your manners, as the instructions say, if you don't say please, then it uh, somehow affects that, and they will eventually not be as happy uh, as they started off being. So you have to do a lot of please and thank yous. Um, oh, I, I wrote down a note here, something I found out this week. Um, if you're playing this game in WinVice, like I am playing on Windows, the Commodore 64 emulator, uh, of course the keys are remapped, and the tab key on your normal PC uh, keyboard is actually the control key on the Commodore 64. So all these commands like control P, control R, whatever, uh, you're actually, if you're in the emulator, you would hit tab and that letter. So that's just a little difference. If you're trying those and they're not working, you might try that. Uh, as far as your little computer person goes, there are four different moods. He can be happy, content, sad, or sick. Uh, so you could tell the looks, uh, by his face. If he's smiling, he's happy. If he's just, uh, you know, doing nothing, he's content. If he's sad, you'll see him frown and, Apparently, if you get him sick, he will frown and also be green, uh, which I've never personally seen, but uh, I suppose you could do it. Uh, again, you can lift his uh, uh, morale by petting him or you know, using your manners uh, and uh, giving him records and books, things like that. So it's really not that difficult to keep him uh, happy. It kind of reminds me of the, uh, what were those things, the Tamagotchi things uh, that we had for a while, like the little electronic pets that people had on their keychains and stuff. Uh, it's similar to that. You can change the name, uh, change your name as the scientist. Uh, you can, uh, when he goes to his computer, you could type log on, please. And I, I never knew this. I think this may be a, uh, maybe even like an Easter egg kind of thing. Uh, and then, um, when he, if you type log on, please, he will log onto his computer and run the name changer program. And then you enter one on the keyboard and follow the on-screen instructions, and you can change your name. I never knew that uh, as a kid. That is not uh, in the instructions, I'm pretty sure. Uh, so again, you have this cutaway picture of the house. On the first floor, uh, there's the kitchen. There he can make food, he can drink water, he can feed the dog. There's the living room. Uh, that's where he will talk on the phone. He reads a newspaper. You can pet him there. There's a fireplace where he will uh, start a fire sometimes, and then there's the door. Sometimes he just comes and goes on his own free will. The second level has the bedroom. There's the alarm clock there. There's a closet that he goes into. There's the bathroom where he will wash his hands at the sink. There's a little toilet, but it's behind a door, so you don't actually see him going to the bathroom. Uh, and then a shower area. 
And then there's a study that has books. Sometimes he will log on to uh, his computer and uh, type things. And then there's also a clock hanging on the wall, which is time accurate based on when you launch the program, it asks you what time it is. And uh, that time is reflected on the clock hanging on the wall. The third level up at the top, like I said, that attic area is kind of his den. There's a television he watches sometimes, a record player. Uh, He sits in his lounge chair to enjoy that stuff. There's a piano that he enjoys playing, a closet with other things in it, uh, a typewriter where he will write you uh, letters, and then there's a filing cabinet with his games. There are a few games he will play. um, Gosh, there's Anagram is one. Uh, There's Poker. And uh, like five card draw, and there's something else. I don't remember what the other one is. Maybe it's uh, blackjack. Maybe I don't remember. But um, but yeah, he'll he'll play card games with you. And uh, sometimes if you haven't interacted with him for a while, he will go up to the game cabinet, pull a game out, and then uh, we'll virtually knock on the glass on the monitor. You'll hear a little dink, dink, dink. And uh, uh, the first time he did, I just thought that was hilarious. But he will knock on the glass to get your attention and uh, ask you if you want to play a game. Of course, you can always, uh, when you're typing with him, you can ask him uh, if he'll play a game with you. And you can also, like I said, ask him to write you a letter, and he will write you a little letter that says, Dear Flack, and then it goes on, I'm just greatly enjoying my time in the house, and and uh, all these little things. And he might even say, like, oh, I wish I had more records to play, and then, you know, you take the hint and you uh, send him some records. But uh, that, that was always really, uh, for me as a kid, gave that kind of artificial intelligence uh, aspect to the game. Like, wow, he's really, uh, Ogden's writing me a letter. (laughs) It was really, really fun. Um, Some trivia I found out about the game, which I did not know, uh, was that there were add-ons planned for the game, but they were never released. They talked about releasing different models of houses. Um, the, The story in the manual is that little computer people live inside everyone's computers, and that this is just, all you're purchasing with this is the house. So you're buying a house on a disc and then the little computer person that lives inside your computer and has always been there sees the house and moves into it. So each time you load up the house, your little computer person is coming out of the computer, you know, out of the the wires and uh, moving into the house. So that that was the idea behind it. So apparently they were going to have add-ons with different furniture or different houses and stuff, but uh, that stuff was never released. There is also a LCP tools collection, and I did have this as a kid. Um, there are a few different uh, tools. There's a LCP evictor, which will delete the data and create an empty house, and then LCP creator, which will create a new little computer person. So it, it just regenerates a new person if maybe yours is sick or, or you want to generate a new one. There's also a LCP hotel, which allows you basically to export the data, and you could import it to someone else's house. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I did have those. There were some other ones too. I didn't see other ones listed, but I remember there were other ones that would let you, uh, mess around with the, uh, uh, generation of your little computer person and, uh, tweak it a little bit for reviews. Commodore horizons gave this eight out of 10 Commodore user gave it five out of five. Uh, zap gave it 97%. Uh, little computer people appears in the book. 1,001 video games you must play before you die. This was a very successful, very enjoyable title. People really enjoyed this. Now, it didn't last, like the little computer people craze didn't last for a long time. And, and um, you know, I was going to talk about that in a minute, but I, I, I'll just talk about it now. This came at a time where there was no multitasking. 
Uh, so if you loaded this game on your Commodore, this is what it did. It was only doing little computer people. We had it on our Apple II for a while, and I had it on my Commodore. But that's it. So you load this up, and then and then you can't call BBSs while it's running. You can't, um, you know, do your homework or word processing or play other games or anything. That's it. It can only play this game, which makes sense because it's, you know, just like any game. But there's so much that you're not doing while this game is running. I mean, it really is a simulation of a guy walking around. So it's fun to load it up and watch him walk around for a while. But, you know, after a little while, you realize it's tying up your whole computer and you kind of get bored and you want to do something else. Now, uh, this week, I uh, I have a, a flat screen television in my computer room. So I have uh, dual monitors on my PC, but I'm like, I don't have anything. I, I've got uh, my Commodore and, and a few other things hooked up to my flat screen TV, but I don't have a cable running from my computer over to the TV. So I, I bought a long VGA cable. I actually bought a long HDMI cable at first, and this is a long story. doesn't matter. Uh, but I ended up using a VGA cable, ran it over to the TV, and drug my Commodore emulator over to that TV, fired up little computer people, and just let it run. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that's the thing that makes this not be a super game on people's list because they got bored with it. But being able this week to just run it in another window and let, I might let it run forever. <laughs> just let my little guy run around and do whatever he, he does and occasionally feed him or whatever. I might let it run for weeks. Uh, it's just, um, I don't know. There, there is something appealing about it. It's kind of like playing with a, uh, interactive dollhouse maybe, um, but, uh, I, I really did enjoy this week letting that thing run. This game was ported to the Amiga, the Amstrad CPC, Apple II, Atari ST, the PC-88, the PC-98, and the ZX Spectrum. All of the original 8-bit versions were called Little Computer People. Then uh, I mentioned there was a Commodore, a second version for the C64 that says Little Computer People House on a Disk. All the 16-bit versions, uh, like the Amiga and the Atari ST, all just appear to be named House on a Disc. So that was definitely a, a change that happened. It was also kind of ported to the um, Famicom disc system as a game called Apple Town Story. Now, there's some changes. Uh, instead of a boy, it's a little girl. And instead of a dog, there's a cat. But basically, it's the same game. Uh, there's very little, uh, interactivity. There's no real plot, you know, just like a uh, little computer people. And, uh, this game apparently was popular enough that a lot of people say that it influenced, uh, the Tamagotchi and, um, what's the other one I read? Princess Maker. So, um, it, you know, maybe this game being ported to the Famicom disc system, uh, is something that, that got that spawned. <laughs> And now let's get into my personal memories of this game. Alright, time travelers! As I mentioned, my little computer person was Ogden, and uh <laughs> I played this game more than most people, more than a lot of people, I think. I used to load this game up 
I just let it run. Uh, maybe when I was working on homework or things like that, um, I uh, did not purchase the game, but a friend of mine did. And uh, I borrowed his instruction manual and hand wrote <laughs> all the, the keys, uh, the little function keys. You know what? I will scan. I still have that. Uh, I will scan that in. And uh, I have a notebook of all my old Commodore stuff. I will scan that in and put it in the show notes just because it's funny. Just shows to what great lengths kids would go to, I think, to uh, to not pay for software. <laughs> uh, but again, you know, I think what killed it, not just for me, but for most people, is that there was no uh, multitasking back then. So while uh, this game was running, I couldn't be downloading more games. I couldn't be playing other stuff. And so, uh, uh, you know, eventually you just moved on to other things. But uh, I definitely played this game a lot uh, as a kid and definitely enjoyed it. For graphics, I give it four out of five 8-bit houses. Uh, The graphics are pretty detailed. You can tell what everything in the house is supposed to be, even uh, with the low, relatively low resolution of the old 8-bit computers. It still looks pretty good. For music, I give it a five out of five 8-bit houses. The the music is, uh, you know, he has records he can listen to. He plays the piano. There's all kinds of little entertaining things going on. Uh, So uh, very enjoyable. Sound effects, again, I give it a 5 out of 5. Um, you have the voice, you have the doorbell, you have all these different things. The, the steps of his uh, feet walking across the floor is just really uh, immersive title. And overall gameplay, I give this one 5 out of 5. What I mean by that is it's definitely a classic, it's definitely a game uh, that if you have the ability, you should load up and check out. It's probably not a game you'll play for weeks on end or months, uh, but it's definitely something that you should uh, fire up and, and give it a try and just at least see what all the excitement back then was about. for tuning in to Sprite Castle. If you'd like to play this title or any other title that's been on the show, head over to SpriteCastle.com and click on the downloads link up at the top of the page where you can download Commodore 64 emulators and all the games that have been reviewed on Sprite Castle. If you'd like to send me feedback about this or any other episode of Sprite Castle, you can email me at robohara at robohara.com, contact me on Twitter at Commodork, follow the show on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Sprite Castle, or leave me a voicemail on the Flat Podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. Sprite Castle is available from iTunes, Stitcher Radio, the SpriteCastle.com RSS feed, and through throwbacknetwork.net, your home for quality retro podcasts. To hear more podcasts from me, check out You Don't Know Flat, Throwback Reviews, and Multiple Sadness. You can find links to these and all my shows at robohair.com forward slash podcasts. Many of the news articles and game details for Sprite Castle come from websites such as Commodore is Awesome, the Commodore Scene Database, Lemon64, and Moby Games. For links to these and more websites, check out the list of links on the right-hand side of SpriteCastle.com. Thanks again for listening. Now get back to chatting with your virtual friends, and we'll see you here next time on Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle.